just recorded a podcast with Claire Dancer, who is a researcher at the University of Warwick in the UK. And oh my God, her research is so cool. Oh my God. Her research is all about ceramics and how to make ceramics at like uh, lower temperatures. And wow, what a journey she has had. And the current work she's doing, ah, oh, everything, everything. We talked about so many things and the unusual places where you can find ceramics. And uh, yeah, so can't wait for you to watch the episode about revolutionizing the hundred, no, not hundred, sorry, uh, shattering the 10,000 year old um, cooking recipe of ceramics. So yeah, stay tuned to watch the episode. All right, bye. Hi everyone, I am Pranoti, your host of Under the Microscope podcast and today we have with us Claire Dancer who is a reader at University of Warwick which is in the middle of England. Hi Claire, welcome to Under the Microscope, how are you? I'm good, thank you Pranoti, thank you for having me on the on the podcast. We're happy to have you. So before I ask, like, get into your science, I have what what's a reader Claire, we are all readers we can all read what yeah it? i know i've gone through quite a lot of my career to now be um able to call myself a reader i did think i qualified rather younger um but yes a reader is a is sort of the third rung of the ladder in the uk system um the uk academic sort of system is in a bit of flux right now and everyone's calling things by different names we always used to have lecturer as your first academic post, then senior lecturer, then reader, and then professor. So reader is kind of sub-professor. Um, we don't actually call them that anymore. Even in my university, we have assistant professor, associate professor, then reader, and then professor. Um, so it's all changing. But yeah, that's basically where I am. Below professor, but above associate prof. Okay. But then if, if it is like associate professor, 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 and then your end goal is like a full professor. Why yeah. is there still a reader? Why? Are you, why huh? That doesn't make any sense to me. The, well, welcome to universities in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a, it, it's a, it's a historical thing, and a lot of universities are getting rid of it, even in in the UK. So, um, in Cambridge, for example, that this rank is now junior professor. So it's, it's sort of that idea that you're going up, but it comes from the fact that we used to always have. Um, a single professor in a department and that changed about 15 years ago and there were lots more professors but it always used to be there was one professor they were the head of department and that was it and then reader was sort of the subgrade that was sort of the people in waiting so the, the deputies and everyone else was basically senior lecturer and lecturer um, but it has changed and it's sort of seen as a, a, a step on the route up to being full professor. Uh -huh. Okay, so next time, uh, hopefully soon, when you're taking over the account, you will be a professor uh, Fingers crossed. <laughs> who will have her own readers to read scientific papers for her. Sorry. Uh, uh, that's the dream. Yes, people to read for me. Because <laughs> <laughs> you can't be bothered with reading when you're a professor. Mm. As a re That's why you have readers. Uh, you're supposed to know everything by then, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. So uh, it's a historic thing. Okay. Okay. That's uh, that's interesting. And speaking of history, uh, you were telling me a bit about the connection between India and Warwick. There is this special connection. So please tell me about it again. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm a I'm based in a department of the university that's confusingly called the Warwick Manufacturing Group. Mm -hmm. and the Warwick Manufacturing Group started off as a research group in the School of Engineering at, at Warwick and uh, was founded by our founding chairman, uh, Lord Kumar uh, Bhattacharya. Um, he had come over from India as an apprentice, I believe, so really quite a long time ago, had come over to um, make his career in research and, and teaching in the UK. And he founded the Warwick Manufacturing Group to try and bring a little bit of industrial connection into into universities so we were founded on that basis that we'd have really close industrial ties and we've always historically as I was telling you had this strong connection to Tata because they were childhood friends um, and there's a really strong connection there between between the two groups um, so yeah my department has really close ties to India um, I think some of my department 
heads are out there right now talking to um, Indian institutions and we have a really great link to IAT Kagapur where they send students over quite regularly which is, is a really nice thing so there is that strong link um, sadly Lord Bhattacharya passed away in 2018 um, but I think in the time since then we've still cemented that relationship that we have that really close to um, mm -hmm. and and have that really good link into into India and everything, everything Tata. So Tata Steel and JLR are really close connections to my department. Ah, oh, that is so nice to hear. Tata is like a big, big prestigious brand. It's not a brand. I think it's an emotion in India. If you say Tata, it's like, yeah, it's from salt to tractors. Uh, everything uh, is uh, from Tata. I mean, we have it, it's it's so it's so heartwarming to speak with someone who is at a university or at a department uh, which has close connections with Tata. It's so cool! Oh my god, <laughs> this podcast is even more special now for me. <laughs> Um, all right. So, um, Carrie, you mentioned you're at the uh, Department of Manufacturing Group at the University of Warwick. So, uh, what is your research? Could you explain it to us in super simple words, please? Sure. So, my research focuses on ceramic processing. So, mm -hmm. ceramic materials are incredibly useful materials that get overlooked quite a lot because people think they're very brittle and they break really easily. Um, but actually, we all use ceramics all the time, not only mugs and plates and all those sort of common everyday objects, but ceramics are in all of our light fittings, they're in all of our plug sockets. They are materials that can withstand very high temperatures and don't conduct electricity. And metals and polymers don't do that. You can't substitute in for a ceramics. If you need a ceramic, you always need it. So that's why I was sort of interested in, in ceramics historically. But the challenge with a ceramic material is absolutely how do you process it? Traditional ceramic processing, you have to take up the material. You make the material from a powder. Uh, so you make, say, a pellet or, or a little shape that you're going to then fire. You put it into a furnace. You take that furnace way above 1,000 degrees. So we're heating something like aluminium oxide. We're probably going up to 1600 degrees for a day, not a day at temperature, but up and down. And the furnace takes time to go up and down. And then we end up with our nice dense ceramic. It's been densified by solid state diffusion. So it needs a lot of energy to, to do that, to move the pieces around. And then we have something really robust that we can use. But that's a huge energy consumption in that process. We're going up to high temperatures. We're doing it for a long time. We're heating a lot of space around the material, um, not just the material itself. And so in the last sort of 10 to 20 years, a lot of processes have emerged um, and people are looking at how do we bring these temperatures down? How do we reduce the energy that's needed in ceramic processing? Because if we don't, we can't the ceramics industry can't hit their emissions targets the cost is going to continue to be absolutely huge and ceramics won't be able to be used so within my group i sort of think of us as tackling two main challenges and the first one is around energy use in the ceramic industry energy use in making ceramic parts um because we know 90% of the energy in the lifetime of a ceramic is used in manufacturing it. So there's a big win now. If you can reduce the temperature, the energy, the time, there's a big win. Um, and we also know from research that was done that while we can do things like pay ceramic manufacturers to change their gas kilns that are often sort of 40 years old, very long-standing technology that keeps working for a very long time, we can pay them to change those to electricity and then they can run on renewables and that's great, but it doesn't actually solve the problem. It doesn't bring the energy use down enough. So from a research perspective, working on low energy, next generation ceramic processing technologies has a real win from an energy perspective. And there's another thing that we work on, which comes from sort of history of my interests and what, what I'm kind of interested in personally, which is that often people resist using ceramics in devices because they can't process them to full density. If you're making a solid state battery, you have layers of material all joined together. You've got a metal current collector, you've got electrodes, which are probably made of some kind of pseudo ceramic, but doesn't need to be fully dense, so it's probably okay. You have polymer separators and binders. And then traditionally you would have your liquid electrolytes swimming around in there. If you're going to make that a solid instead 
and you want it to be dense and to have really good energy capacity and to be safe, which is one of the major reasons we want to use solid state batteries, you have to sinter that ceramic to high density. And the sintering temperatures of those ceramics, they're no different to the other ceramics above a thousand degrees. You take a piece of aluminium current collector up to a thousand degrees and you don't have your current collector anymore, your polymer is long gone. So you can't do it. And people resist doing it. And they do things like they'll stick the ceramic together with polymer and make a sort of sticky goo. But then you don't get the properties that you really wanted from using the ceramic. And it starts to be questionable, is it worth it? Uh, so one of the other major challenges we have is to think about, can we find methods by which we can densify ceramics, get those high temperature properties, the really dense ceramic parts, but do it all at much lower temperatures. So we've been pushing our temperatures down and down as far as we can go with a couple of different methods, um, but they, they drive the temperature down below the melting temperatures of metals. And some of them drive the temperature down below the temp melting temperature of the polymer as well. So it's a really kind of, there's really compelling reasons to work on this research. Um, and yeah, we have a whole toolbox of things to bring to the table to, to try um, and, and apply to lots of different applications. Oh, that sounds so cool. Oh, my God. I don't think we've had many, like, I, at least I don't recall uh, learning, like, in the in those, like, in these five or ten minutes that we are talking, I've learned more about ceramics than I did uh, over the course of, let's say, last ten years. So thank you very much for that. This is so fascinating, the world of ceramics. My um, personal mission to educate people. <laughs> There's not many of us around. <laughs> Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely. And and you also mentioned that uh, ceramics, uh, if, so when you say ceramics, you're absolutely right. The first things that come to my mind is my coffee mug or my plate or... I don't know. You mentioned like in the in the sockets, the electric uh, electricity sockets, we have uh, ceramics. So what are the most unusual or the wildest places where we can find ceramics that we, we, we don't even know, like in day-to-day -day life, for example? Oh, that's a really interesting question. There's loads of them. Um, and actually, when I teach ceramics, um, I teach it from applications. So mm -hmm. we teach all the properties of ceramics, but from an application basis. So I'll take you through a few of them. So the most exciting one to many people is ceramic armour. People don't think you can use arm, you can make armor out of a ceramic because it will just break, right? It breaks so easily. But actually, a ceramic. Sorry, what's an arm like? Like the armor, thing, like the shield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like a, a soldiers, most soldiers wear a a, a chest plate right. and a helmet, which is made of ceramic. Um, and yeah, and they have to be told not to stand on them because that is not good for them. But um, yeah, it is inserts into the vest. And it's made out of silicon carbide. The helmets are normally made out of boron carbide because it's lighter. But yeah, they're made of ceramics because ceramics are the best at defeating bullets. And actually, if you want an armor system, you don't want the equivalent of a ceramic armor breastplate would be a chunk of steel, a thick, thick chunk of steel. It would yeah. be at least three or four times as heavy. Yeah. And the soldiers already carry enough. Like they yeah. need something light and effective. And why does why do ceramics work as armor? Because ceramics are harder than the bullets that are coming in. So in that dynamic moment when a, a ceramic is hit by a bullet, it dissipates the energy and it either wears the bullet away, because if it's in a metal case in particular, the, uh, it's, essentially you've got a, a friction action and it wears it away. Um, or they take all the energy and absorb it and, and the bullet just falls away. So you're either destroying it or you're taking the energy out um, one way or another and they're normally put into systems so the ceramic part is called a disruptor so it's the thing that sort of defeats the threat there's also absorber layers which are things like kevlar and polymer which absorb the energy more effectively mm -hmm. but yeah they are very very effective as armor so all tanks have arm ceramic armor all over them it's a really big area oh my god <laughs> Oh but it's not something people expect because oh. ceramics break really easily, but they don't. They don't break really easily in certain situations. Ceramics are incredibly strong under compression. And whenever people tell me ceramics are weak, I say, what's your house built of? Your house is built of ceramics. No. Your, house is, your house is bricks of ceramics. No way. <laughs> really, I'm teaching you something. Well, bricks of all ceramics. And 
why is the you know the story of the three little pigs my kids love the story of the three little pigs why do we end up with a ceramic building not one made of sticks and what not one made of straw because the bricks are really really strong when they're in compression right. so you take a piece of ceramic and you you try and bend it like this uh -huh. yeah it's gonna break it's gonna break you try and stretch it it's gonna break you put it under compression no it's fine it's happy it's absolutely fine because the way that a ceramic breaks is you form a, a microscopic floor a little bit of porosity a tiny little bit of crack opening a little defect in the structure and yeah. the floor comes from there but it has to be pulled open you have to pull it open somehow so yeah. if you don't have any tension in your system it's really really strong and they're really durable and they'll last they'll outlast us <laughs> so yeah <laughs> i love that i've shocked you <laughs> Oh my God! You're absolutely right. Yeah, bricks. The, 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 oh my God! Oh my God! Yeah, ceramics are not brittle. Uh, well, they can be brittle. They are brittle, but they're not. They're not weak. That's they're not the weak. Thing. Yeah, that's they the, are not they weak. Are they are not there is there is no way that you can describe a ceramic as weak because they are the strongest materials in many ways that we know. Diamonds are ceramics. You know, people forget no. that. No, they're stones. No. <laughs> stones are ceramics. Yeah. <laughs> everything is ceramics. No, not everything is ceramics. But oh, lots of useful yeah. things are ceramics. So, so that's one example. Another example, um, which is quite different, is that we can make knives out of ceramics. And if you make a knife out of zirconia, um, yeah. zirconium oxide, right. it will last without sharpening. As so long as you don't snap it again. Don't go in with something, you know, really, really hard, cutting up your really, really hard vegetables or something and, and twist the knife, then you're in trouble. Mm. Um, but if not, it will stay sharp for a very, very long time because they're very, very durable and they're much, much harder than anything you would use it on. Right. So a ceramic knife is a great investment. If anyone's looking for investment opportunities, buy <laughs> you yeah, know, nice. or your yeah, wedding yeah. presents, it's a great thing to buy. Um, although people don't like buying knives for people, do they? So it's kind of funny. Um, but yeah, and, and lots of other applications. So huge applications in abrasives. All the abrasives we use are ceramics. Um, so polishing wheels, grinding wheels, all of those kind of metallurgical preparation tools lots and lots of applications to ceramics in uh, biomaterials so you know if anyone's been unfortunate enough to have a replacement tooth for full tooth replacement that will now be made of zirconia rather than um, colored metal and things because it matches the teeth better and it's more durable um, also hip implants and other joint replacements tend to be made of ceramics and that's because they're pretty inert so they don't react with the body tissues and they give a good um, compatibility with the body and uh, mm -hmm. they're not perfect but they're they're better than a lot of the alternatives so it's yeah there's a huge raft of applications structural and functional uh, i didn't really touch on the functional there but so structural would be anything where it's sort of load-bearing mechanical application mm -hmm. or underwear or whatever functional would be more like it's in a um a device it's in a battery it's in a capacitor or a superconductor or mm -hmm. magnets an awful lot of magnets are ceramics um that's oh, wow. uh but it's an interesting in many ways it's a it, ceramic can be a very difficult thing to define mm -hmm. um and that sort of almost leads to how interesting they are um but really ceramics have a particular type of mechanical behavior that's mm -hmm. non-predictable that's what really defines a ceramic uh, from mm -hmm. a material science perspective. You know, that's what I learned as an undergrad was metals have a predictable failure stress. Mm -hmm. Polymers have a predictable transition from elasticity to plasticity. We can plot that out. Mm -hmm. Ceramics are going to break when they want to break mm -hmm. because they break from these microscopic floors. You don't know when they're going to break, what's going to cause the fracture. So you buy a piece of ceramic from, from a supplier and they'll tell you this is what we think it is and they'll give you a statistical distribution on what the strength of the material is mm -hmm. and that's what makes something a ceramic it's that unpredictability and it's in its fracture behavior but that's not what we use it for quite often um so it's the it does give rise to this absolute world of applications that we can use them for oh wow that is so cool that is so cool oh my god oh my god so, no, okay claire tell me how did you become the ceramics expert like what, uh, tell me about your career journey how how did you become this 
in my head you are like the ceramic queen like if Aww. i have any questions about ceramics i'm going to come to claire the ceramic queen so how did you how did you end up in warwick being a reader and ceramic queen um okay i will I, let me start where where should i go back to right i'll go back to um i grew up in south wales um i lived near cardiff went to school there um oh. and i was always really interested in science like my dad was a scientist he was a microbiologist and he worked at Cardiff Uni mm -hmm. and I always had that kind of knocking around in my life which is very very um fortunate really because it does change how you sort of approach things and what you think you can do so mm -hmm. I felt like I had a massive rebellious streak and decided I was much more interested in physics and engineering than uh, than biology biology seemed a bit bit of a pain you had to go to the lab in the middle of the night and turn things off and all this and yeah physics was much more interesting so mm -hmm. I used to do lots of things at school I did the um sort of engineering courses uh various things I'd go off and do and lots of sort of astrophysics I really wanted to be an astrophysicist I always wanted to work for NASA mm -hmm. you said you it was always the dream to work for Tata in India it's like okay. go and work for NASA that's what you want to do <laughs> uh, I'm not there yet but you know you never know. Um, but yeah, but as I went through school, I studied uh, sciences, specialised in sciences for A-level and applied to Cambridge. And at Cambridge, you apply for natural sciences. You don't do a specific science degree. So my list of places to apply to was like Cambridge, natural sciences, and then physics everywhere else. It was all physics, physics, physics. And um, much to my surprise, I got in, which was barrier one crossed. And when I went off there, I, I started natural sciences, chose physics, chemistry, you had to do maths and then I had one more and I thought I'll do material sciences that sounds interesting that sounds like something I don't know much about it's kind of engineering -y. I'd had two, two minds about doing engineering or physics and um, yeah it took me about four weeks terms at Cambridge are eight weeks <laughs> halfway through I was like no I want to do materials materials is much more interesting and I think actually the truth of it was it was the bits I found interesting in A-level physics it was things like Hooke's law and Young's modulus and deformation of materials but that was all physics at school so I would never have known about material science if I hadn't gone to Cambridge I would have gone to another university and done physics and probably wouldn't be here so that's right that's the first sort of compelling thing so after that I could specialize in materials for most of the time I think second year I did material science I did mineral Minimal sciences, which was basically crystallography, mm -hmm. uh, which was quite interesting thing that they still offered then. I don't know that they do now. And I did fluid mechanics because I thought, OK, well, I'll know about the solids and then I'll know about the fluids. That seems like a good good balance. Mm -hmm. And then I specialised in material science for the last two years. And during that time, I did some, some placements and some summer jobs. I went to ETH in Zurich mm -hmm. and I spent a summer just with Erasmus when we could still do Erasmus, much to my dismay. We've now lost that with Brexit. Um, but I went out to the surface science lab and worked for a professor called Nick Spencer. And he was a Cambridge grad. Um, I think he liked having me around because he could talk in like British English to me instead of talking oh, wow. to all his um, Swiss colleagues. And um, I realised that actually what they were doing was really interesting. You know, I was using the microscopes. So I was trying to work out how to make a, a um, graded structure on a on a surface film that we would basically template a a chemical structure and put a polymer over the top and make it segregate according to the underlying template and then peel it off and of course in eight weeks you don't get anywhere but um but you know we tried and it was really interesting and that i think coming at the end of my that was the summer between third and fourth year of my undergrad and it was the perfect time that made me realize yeah this is what i'd like to do i'd like to do a phd i'd like to go and do a phd somewhere um so i was quite fortunate to find my PhD I think it was quite serendipitous that I actually found it but I'd done my third year project individual project with uh, Judith McManus Driscoll who'd only recently come up to Cambridge so I was very lucky in lots of ways and she offered a project looking at a material called magnesium diboride and magnesium diboride is a superconductor it was only found to be a superconductor in 2001 and compared to most superconductors anyone who's looked at a chemical structure for a superconductor that's a high temperature modern one it's four or five elements it's non-stoichiometric it's this very specific composition that you have to get just right and then you get a great superconductor fine magnesium diboride comes in a in a jar you could buy it from Alpharesa you could buy it very cheaply then you can't buy it very cheaply now uh, it used to be very very cheap um, and it's just two elements put together so why on earth does this superconductor at 39 Kelvin you know an industrial compatible temperature we can take a cryocooler down to 39 Kelvin easily 
And there was an absolute explosion of research in that field. So I did this short project with, with Judith on that and looking at different structures and looking at things. And then I happened to see an advert for a PhD at Oxford on the same topic. And I was like, yes, this is what I want to do. So I thought, okay, I can move to Oxford. That's not a big deal. Like, that's fine. I'm fed up at Cambridge anyway. Um, it's <laughs> No, I just, uh, everyone was leaving and taking proper jobs. And I thought, okay, I'll leave as well and go somewhere. Mm -hmm. Not very different, but, uh, but, but different enough. Yeah. And so I, I moved over there and I spent four years um, on a project called Ceramic Processing of Magnesium Diboride. And in many ways, that's where it starts, I think. I was really interested in ceramics from my undergrad studies. They just seemed like the most interesting materials to work on compared to the others, not doing everything else down. But to me, they were the most interesting because they were awkward and difficult and it was a challenge to work on them. So I spent four years working on this material. Magnesium diboride reacts with water. So you can't do lots of processing. It oxidizes like crazy. So you can't do loads of processing. So there was lots of like working around all these problems and challenges and mm -hmm. eventually came to the conclusion that you need high pressure and high temperature and you need a very, very protective environment because the moment you form magnesium oxide, which it wants to very easily, you start killing the superconductivity in the system. And so I learned about things like the importance of getting a connected structure. It's not just about gluing the particles together with something else. You've got to actually connect the two particles together and make a proper grain boundary, not just that glue sort of thing. Um, and, and that was really interesting. But after four years, I was a bit fed up of annoying system and thought, OK, I'll go and work on some normal ceramics. And I was lucky enough to get a project working on ceramic armour, which is where I know about ceramic armour. And that was working on more conventional oxides and some carbides. And we looked at uh, constructing some tests for slower than ballistic, but still dynamic testing and things like that and looking at how things break. Um, ceramics react very differently to a dynamic impact than to a static impact. Mm -hmm. um, it's because there's not enough time for the cracks to grow. So lots of cracks grow at once. And so you get a lot of internal damage in the system. We found a method using uh, a sort of modified Raman spectros spectroscopy. spectroscopy. We yeah. could map out the, um, we could use that to map out the residual stress and the plastic deformation that's caused by this microcracking in the system. So for one major question in ceramic armour is, can we make armour which can be hit multiple times? Because obviously that's a bill challenge if it's been hit you can't replace it in the field. So what do you do? Um, and it is really challenging. It's really hard to make things multi-hit reliably. Um, mm -hmm. The practical solution to this is make all your armor tiles very small. And then if one gets hit, it's not such a problem. But uh, mm -hmm. I don't think we really solved that one. But we, we worked out a method to understand it better. Um, yeah, the project was understanding and improving ceramic armor. And I think we understood it, but I'm not sure we improved it very much. Um, but yeah. Understanding but, is the first step. Absolutely. No, we, we got there. But yeah, the, the other bit was a stretch goal. <laughs> um, but yeah, but it was such an interesting project to work on. And in many ways, it made me a proper ceramicist because I was working on the conventional materials, not the weird ones. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that gave me a bit more sort of um, interest in ceramics. But a project then came up. I wanted to another postdoc um, wasn't quite ready to sort of look for proper academic jobs at that point but uh, still wasn't completely convinced that's what I wanted to do I think at that point but uh, uh, so I moved to another postdoc which came available which was on metamaterials uh -huh. and this has really sort of um, had quite a major impact on me now uh, thinking about metamaterials and these structured materials which are so interesting they're structures of materials that have these unique properties or unusual properties mm -hmm. certainly properties that the, the parent materials don't have that's the really key thing with, with metamaterials and figuring out ways to make them um, was quite an interesting exercise and it led me to doing some polymer processing for the first time which I hadn't ever done before but we were incorporating ceramics into the polymer to then to then make a structured metamaterial in different ways with 3D printing and with uh, molding and, and different approaches like that um, and it was really interesting but it sort of felt a little bit like giving up. Like, why aren't we doing the ceramic processing? Why aren't we trying the ceramic method? It sort of felt like that was too hard. It was easier to make things by polymer roots. And, and that is something I'd get behind, but there are applications where you want a ceramic still and, and mm -hmm. where, you, where you're still interested in that. Mm -hmm. um, and so that sort of is where I went on into this sort of independent academic job. So I saw an advert for a job at Warwick 
I was looking for jobs. My husband and I were looking for jobs in the same place or at least roughly the same place would have been great. Um, and I saw this job at work and I thought, okay, that's not too far from Oxford, actually. It's about an hour away. It's, it would be doable even if we don't both move. So let's apply. And not much to my surprise, I got an interview. Um, and I went up there and it was a bit strange because Warwick doesn't have a materials department. Uh -huh. So I thought, oh, I'd always been in places with a materials department, you know, and that's where my natural home was. That's where I thought I would, would be. But when I came up here, it turned out I was being interviewed by someone who had, was a metallurgist who'd come to work from Imperial, who was very much a material scientist. And mm -hmm. that kind of gave me a little bit of faith that actually maybe this is where the material sciences is, is in the manufacturing department in mm -hmm. the manufacturing group. So, uh, yeah, long story short, I came up here in 2013. So it's almost been 10 years, which is a bit mm -hmm. crazy. Came up as assistant prof and started my group. And it took me a little while. Um, to figure out what I wanted to do it wasn't completely straightforward to me that I wanted to just do ceramics and I still keep a bit of an interest in polymers because that experience of sometimes it's easier to do a polymer processing boot is still it's still a compelling argument to me you can get the functionality of a ceramic but the ease of processing of a polymer mm -hmm. um, and, and that that is still something we we still do in the group but yeah I sort of climbed the ladder um, up through associate prof and now to reader and then the next step just one more step to professor um, but in the meantime had two kids and a pandemic and all sorts of things so it's been a bit of a tumultuous time but but yeah the group is pretty established now we have PhD students coming through working on lots of different projects and some some postdocs working on funded projects as well and I've got lots of great colleagues who can help me with the sort of application of the work we do people who are specialists in batteries who can tell me okay you know if you've made this material and it has this kind of cycling capacity or something else that I don't fully understand then it will be a good battery and that's really really great to have these people around me who can really push what we do in my niche, the ceramic processing niche, that's great, that's mine. But where we overlap with other people, that's that's the joy of being in such a diverse university where people are working on so many different challenges. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, lots of lots of interest. That's how I got here. Long oh story. God. Oh my God! No, this was this was great. This was wow. So you're you're from after those uh, once you started your journey within two weeks or within four weeks, you realize that in your heart you're a material scientist. It's like true material scientist. Yay! Because material science is is the best, but you don't know about it at school, do you? It's it's such a a challenge yeah absolutely absolutely when i started my undergrad in 20 uh, 2008 uh, in india uh, we didn't have a material science department it was called metallurgical and material science engineering yeah and back then whenever i would tell people that yeah i'm doing my undergrad in metallurgical and material science engineering they would just ignore the material science part and just focus on metallurgy and even mm -hmm. the metallurgy part they would be like oh so you're working with metros is it metro Metro cities, <laughs> so that was also a bit like what? Uh, but yeah, it's it's really nice uh, to meet you, Claire, who is a material scientist. <laughs> and you're 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 kind of like usually people start with you know physics or chemistry or biology, and then they transition into material. Mm. Uh, like on paper um, but in your case it's like material science material science now at the manufacturing group <laughs> that's a bit of a, yeah. yeah that's true I, mean, I probably am a bit rare in that one it's uh, it's it's the different approach isn't it but yeah you're right most an awful lot of people I know who work in materials didn't do a material science degree mm -hmm. and I think in in many respects that's absolutely fine and there's lots of material science research for everyone yeah. that's great but the thing I challenge people on is that material science is about microstructure, microstructural evolution, microstructural development. If you're not thinking about that, you're not really working on material science. You're mm -hmm. doing other related things and that's great. And materials is for everyone, etc. But ceramics and metals, not so much polymers, but ceramics and metals have a grain structure. They have a microstructure and that is what gives them their properties in the end. It's not just the chemistry. It's yeah. all about that microstructural development. And that's the only thing I'd ask people who come into the field without doing the undergrad. You've got to understand microstructural development and grain boundaries and oh. then you'll be a proper material scientist and I will I'll be happy to call you that <laughs> oh, I'm so I'm so this is like music to my ears yeah boundaries grains no one talks about it oh my god like, no one talks about it and it's, uh, it's it's my mission to educate people and get it into my lectures all the time because it's important 
We will do this together. Count me in. Grains and grain. Uh, let's make grain boundaries great again. Because oh, yeah, perfect. We'll get some hats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, Claire, it sounds to me that since your bachelor or since your undergrad time until now, uh, uh, also now, uh, you have been involved in a lot of interesting research projects. I mean, even at ETH, uh, ETH Zurich and with then working with the armors and like uh, th this, this is so, so many interesting experiments, I imagine. Uh, and this is a tough question, okay? I know it um, for sure. If you have to pick one research project that you're most proud of or the most fun or quirky one, could you pick one and explain it to us in simple words in the section we call In Other Words? I will try. I must say that like, you write a description and then something else pops into your head and, and you realize that something else was also very exciting. And obviously I'm, I'm incredibly proud of the work I did in my PhD. Mm -hmm. That is such a, it's a huge, it's what I say to my students, you will always be proud of that work. It's a huge body of work. Um, but, but funnily, I think the, the project that was both the most frustrating and then ultimately the most incredibly satisfying moment, possibly in my life, was a project I did for six months. Um, it was one of my first postdocs. I think quite often, I, I don't think I'm unusual in this, eventually you find your proper postdoc. But in that period between handing in the PhD and something else, you sort of, you'll take anything, you'll take a quick quick contract, someone's end of contract, someone like, on a short one. And this was an industrially funded project mm -hmm. where we were asked if we could make a tube, which was aluminium oxide at one end and silicon carbide at the other. And that is not an easy thing to do um, for anyone who's not a ceramicist. Um, ceramicists are sort of putting their head in their hands right now and you can't do that. Um, the problem is that aluminium oxide and silicon carbide, the coefficient of thermal expansion is about a, fact, a ratio of two to one. So you can make this thing and at high temperature, you'll have a tube and it will be all straight sided and exactly what you want. Then you cool it down and your straight sided cube will go like that. And likely it will just go because it's too much. There's too much stress in that system mechanically. And having a great big hole down the middle is not actually helping anything um, because that just changes the stress state and makes it even more complicated because now you have two free surfaces, not just one. Um, so it's a complicated thing to make. You can't just literally take a piece of silicon carbide and join it to a piece of aluminium oxide. You have to be more clever than that. So there were two ways we tackled this. One was to change that residual stress. How can we change the residual stress? Well, you can look at the residual stress that's due to having aluminum oxide and silicon carbide. You can do a rough calculation that's like a rule of mixture. So you say there's this contribution to the residual stress from the alumina and there's this contribution from the silicon carbide. If we do a sort of 90-10 and 80-20 and 70-30, et cetera, we'll gradually change that. And that's one method that works. It took a while to make that work. We made it work in a solid piece. And then we started thinking about how do we make this in a tube? So that wasn't too bad. It took a bit of a while to work out. We needed 19 layers, I think, in the end, which is quite a lot of compositions. And it means running through that processing cycle, processing a ceramic, a unique composition of ceramic takes three days. So you've got to mill it, you've got to uh, dry it, and then you've got to actually process it into the part you want. So it's a lot of time. Um, so then we tackled the how do we make the hole down the middle? And we were using a process called hot pressing, which is where you put the powders into a graphite mold and you press them while you heat them up. For silicon carbide, conventional sintering temperature silicon carbide is over 2000 degrees. Uh, we couldn't afford to go to that temperature because the aluminium oxide wouldn't survive it. It needs more like 1600 max. Uh, so we needed to find a, a way to compromise and the, the compromise route was to uh, try add in a different addition into the system so we added in some different uh, additives which would bring the temperature down and help with that um, so that was all working fine the hole down the middle was an issue because the problem is when you put you can construct a die which makes you a nice little thing and you put a sort of insert in the middle and hot pressing to some extent relies on the fact that as you cool the sample down it starts off the same size as the mold put my fingers properly and then it shrinks off and then you can pop it out of the die because there's a tiny bit of space and you can just slide it away when you've got something down the middle it moves away from the outer wall but it clamps onto the inner wall so what do you do well i tell you what you do you keep going back to the hot press and taking out samples that you then can't get off the central core and you scream in frustration and occasionally go off for a drink because you're just so annoyed with this whole thing. Right. But 
eventually, with some lateral thinking, some real careful thinking about the process then, we found a supplier who could give us some inner cores for this mould, which would shrink more. And that was critical. So we got an inner section of, of the graphite mould, which would shrink away from the, the, the ring, and it would take out. And I will tell you, the first time I took this thing out of the hot press was just about the best moment of my life. <laughs> it was, I had had months and months and months of broken samples. Oh. And broken ceramic samples are the saddest thing in the world. It's just, like, oh, I did all that work, all of those days of processing, days and days and days of processing, broken. But you're learning all the time and you've got to be persistent with those things. You've got to be a bit resilient and keep your eyes on the on the main goal. What is it that's causing this problem? You know, it's the central part. How do we get around that? There's ways, there's engineering methods, there's materials methods. And so we made this thing. And I remember I gave it to the industrial uh, supervisor, the, the industrial contact, who was so pleased with it. And he took it to a meeting about it and rolled it down the table at someone. Um, and this thing was robust, it held together, and we'd done it. And that was just such a satisfying moment. Um, I don't think anything will ever top that, actually, because it was such a project where I was working, just me and my supervisor, most of the time we were working together. Um, there were lots of problems, lots of frustrations, but to have that satisfactory outcome uh, was so valuable and there's a lot of lessons from that project that I take on in in sort of future work so quite a lot of the mess materials work I do now comes from that grading from that structuring that we did in that completely different application this was making a tube for high temperature oil and gas handling um, it wasn't actually anything to do with mess materials at all but the processing is very very similar um, mm -hmm. and so yeah it still inspires some of the group activities now <laughs> which is so interesting oh, that is so cool congratulations <laughs> on making it work oh it was a long time ago but yes <laughs> so, yeah. I still yeah. smile when I think about it <laughs> oh my god this is like I, I mean I know this question is difficult because there are so many projects that you're proud of uh, but there is always that one that sticks like mm. ah, the frustration 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 and then the, as you as you described it the first time it works it's like the best thing in the world nothing can top that and it's ah it's so amazing um wow it's ah, it's so amazing yeah because <laughs> if, if the coefficient of expansion is is different like two is to one then it's like the worst thing and you want uh, yeah okay wow, wow 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 oh my god that's so cool oh my god that's so awesome so you mentioned that ceramics are uh like silicon carbide is it what 1000 or more degrees 2000 2000 degrees celsius and then um and, and aluminium oxide is, of course, way lower than that. Uh, it will just melt at that temperature. So probably won't melt, but you'd end up with an enormous grain size. That's the problem. Mm. So you'd be looking at sort of 2,500 foot to melt. Um, but but the grain size, the grain growth is, is, is very, very problematic. And then you'd end up with a very weak alumina component. That's, right. the, that's the problem. Yeah. Right, because grain, grain boundaries are where the dislocations can stop or build up kind of. well there are the cracks not well you know we're, we're going to get into very advanced ceramics now um yes not so many dislocations in ceramics conventionally right but they are there but they don't always act to, to cause failure as they do uh -huh. in metals <laughs> ah yeah okay so see i i only know the grain boundaries and dislocations and cracks from the metal perspective ceramics yeah we spend so much time on but ceramics don't generally have many slip systems to allow the the movement of dislocation so it's it, but at high temperatures they do so that's when you get some interesting behavior but that's basically why they don't have any plasticity plasticity in metals is dislocation mo motion mostly um but yeah this is why ceramics don't really have any of that behavior right right okay so so did you did you manage to make the silicon carbide at like lower temperatures then yeah we brought it down to um below it was below 1850 in the end which was fine um which okay. is, is reasonable and for the application we were using um perfectly acceptable for okay. some applications that wouldn't be acceptable because you do it by adding in different compounds right um it's a bit of a sort of magic mixture of of, of powders that you sprinkle in a bit like with steel making you know you sprinkle all this stuff in um mm -hmm. but it generally does things to the grain boundaries so you form a different phase at the grain boundaries and that enables the the um densification to happen at a lower temperature mm -hmm. but when you 
when you make those kind of compromises, you always compromise on the mechanical properties because you don't have pure single phase silicon carbide. Mm. You have silicon carbide, which is to some extent glued together with something else. And mm. whenever you have those interfaces between different materials in a composite structure, you have defects and you have uh, potential weaknesses. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it is challenging. Okay, okay, okay. So you, you, it, is it safe to say that it's you're you're also changing the recipes of how to make the ceramics, like the good old ten thousand year old recipes, <laughs> and you're basically by different ways that you use your magic science actually <laughs> magic science <laughs> that you're you're shattering the old recipes and uh, recreating new recipes which are more eco-friendly or at low temperatures like mm. that save energy and all of that is that is that a fair uh, yeah i'd say that's that's a that's a good description of, of what we're trying to do really i mean obviously some of the recipes are a bit younger than, than ten thousand years but but mm -hmm. we have been making ceramics as humans for a very long time mm -hmm. firing them with with fires and as we've been able to go to higher temperatures that's when we've got these technical ceramics these high temperature ceramics which um which need heating at such high temperatures but yeah we take uh, we broadly take five approaches to this in my group um one of them is is that first one changing adjusting the chemistry putting in different phases changing things um so you're still doing basically the same process but you can bring the temperature down a bit but not mm -hmm. not dramatically but but a bit which might just enable something else to happen um mm -hmm. we've looked at similar things for silicon nitride for example can we bring the temperature down just a bit so we're more at 1750 than at 1950 2000 because it does make a big difference the technology to make a kiln go to really high temperatures is is much more vulnerable um you're you're taking if you want to heat something up to such a high temperature you are putting that material the element that's doing the heating through some really high thermal stresses you're mm -hmm. using a lot of energy to do that you often have to do it extremely slowly so mm -hmm. any reduction you can get in the temperature can be really good mm -hmm. so that's sort of the first method we use we have a couple of sort of next generation technologies we call them because they are new sort of emerged in the last 20 years that we look at uh, one of them is called flash interim and it's mm -hmm. called that because it happens in a flash um, and often you get a flash of light when it happens because there's a huge energy discharge mm -hmm. but for flash interim we uh, connect electrodes to the ceramic and we put electric field through the ceramic material while we heat it to a more modest temperature than the normal and what this does is it focuses all the energy into the sample so instead of heating up huge amounts of space and uh, having to deal with a lot of thermal conductivity issues we put all the energy straight in mm -hmm. and as you go to slightly higher temperature you can't do it strictly at boom temperature you have to put some energy in mm -hmm. you adjust the ionic conductivity of the material that enables more densification to happen because you get more diffusion of the solid state materials mm -hmm. so internally in these flash sintered samples the temperature is extremely high um, we've melted samples this way so you know the temperature is incredibly high if you can melt a piece of ceramic um, you must be above 2000 locally mm -hmm. but we're only heating the furnace to 700 900 maybe a thousand but it's much much lower than we'd normally use mm -hmm. and that's a, a really compelling way to to sinter a ceramic material mm -hmm. um we have found it quite challenging though the ionic conductivity has to be high enough so you can't do it with every material um we're looking at ways that we can use additive approaches to bring those temperatures down so if we put the right additive on the on the particle surface can we bring those temperatures down for materials that don't really want to flash sinter in the mm -hmm. same kind of way Mm -hmm. So that work we do a lot with a company here in the UK called Lucidian, who have um, really nice scalable technologies for doing these flash sintering methods. And we, we work together closely with them. Mm -hmm. um, the second method we use that's sort of a new technology is called cold sintering. And this was invented by Clive Vandal in Penn State in the last 10 years, I'd say. It's really, this is really modern and up to date for ceramics. Um, cold sintering takes a, a different approach and it's very useful for functional applications where you don't need the full density. But basically in cold sintering, you fuse all the particles together. You don't really densify in the same way, but you put a small amount of some kind of liquid, water if you can manage, a solvent if not, um, into your ceramic mm -hmm. powder. You're not really making a slurry. It's not like this sort of very dilute, it's not slip casting. It's not, it's not really, really wet. It's just a small amount of liquid. Mm -hmm. And you put the whole thing under pressure 
and you take it to a small temperature, somewhere between, uh, say, probably between 100 and 300. It's that mm-hmm. kind of processing window. Mm-hmm. And you put this thing under pressure, and what happens is a small amount of the material on the surface of the particles dissolves into the liquid. Mm-hmm. That is then in a liquid state, and instead of doing solid-state diffusion, which needs a lot of energy, you're in a liquid state, liquid phase diffusion, things can move around. Um, that also lubricates the particles to rearrange into the best positions. And you end up, once you've done this, with a microstructure that basically looks like almost like a geological sample. You've got your particles all arranged in the best way, and between them is a sort of amorphous gloop of, mm. of uh material that was dissolved and then re-precipitated when you when you reverse the processing conditions mm-hmm. and for some for some applications absolutely not it will break it's ceramic armor no way no way are we using those materials but mm-hmm. for something like a battery actually the density is fine it's not fully dense but it's okay we can cope with that amorphous material we can actually use it to do some interesting things and we've done some very interesting things in my group with putting things into that amorphous mixture to help with the electrochemical properties mm-hmm. um, and we can do it all at low temperature and that's the real winner in the end so we get rid of all these processing compatibility problems with, with this process the challenging part at the moment is it does need pressure mm-hmm. and processes that need pressure are hard mm-hmm. to set up to scale up to move onwards from we don't want to be making individuals batteries you know one at a time coin cell we mm-hmm. want to be making a pouch cell on a line so right. that's the challenge right now. So how do we take this idea, this this thing that we know works, and make it into a useful industrial process? Mm-hmm. Um, the other methods we use in my group aren't so, well, they're a bit different, I suppose. One of them is basically give up and use a polymer. Mm-hmm. And that, as I said before, has been extremely successful at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've made some really interesting materials with, with polymer approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third one is really to try and reduce the number of processing steps involved in making a sample. Mm-hmm. This is where I sort of circle back to the gradient. So instead of making lots of individual pieces and having to then fuse them together, we mm-hmm. do it all in one processing step and we put that all together. So it's sort of a combination of all the other technologies. Mm-hmm. And that's how we pull it together. So it's sort of five categories of quite broad broad categories of approaches but all the work kind of fits under those under those areas and that's mm-hmm. how we tackle these problems mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay wow thank you for sharing your recipe uh, or your tricks with us you didn't get all of them <laughs> uh, thank you for giving us a glimpse into the recipe uh, that is that is so so cool so claire it's clear to me uh, oh claire it's clear um, <laughs> That that you really love the research aspect of being a scientist or being a reader now. What else do you like about being a scientist other than the research itself? What else? Yeah, this is an interesting one because there's lots of things actually. I, I it's amazingly it's an amazing privilege to get to do this job, um, to get to learn things, to get to explore my own interests, to to build something that is really focused around me and what I'm interested in Mm -hmm. but I think the thing that the thing that's most compelling to me about being a a scientist being a especially being a material scientist and the thing I notice in myself compared to other people is you understand why things are the way they are Mm -hmm. you know and I think there's a huge power in that in your everyday life in the world if you understand why is something made out of a particular thing, why does that have that particular appearance or that particular property? Or even why did that break? <laughs> you know, these are really interesting things to understand. And I think that's the real, the really best thing for me about being a material scientist is understanding the world, really understanding why things are the way they are, um, and being able to explain it to my kids when it's why is it like this? Why is it like this? Um, that's what I really, really love um, about mm-hmm. my job and about what I've chosen to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So understanding really the why that is that is that is mm-hmm. really cool. Yes, definitely. Um, it 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 also sounds to me, Claire, that your research experience has been wonderful so far. Um, I mean, of course, on the surface, from what I know. Um, <laughs> 
However, if you had three wishes to improve your research experience, what would you ask for? And we recently did an analysis, like a word cloud, of uh, we, we, we reached a milestone of 100 material scientists, and we asked all of them, like, what are your three wishes, top three wishes? And after you tell me your wishes, I can tell you uh, <laughs> what, what the popular ones were. I'm so just imagining a big word cloud with the central thing being more money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes definitely definitely yeah more money more money would be great more funding would mm -hmm. be amazing um in the uk more funding that isn't tied to applications mm -hmm. the things i do are not application specific mm -hmm. and that is not actually appreciated that well right now um so i sort of write a grant that's for solid state batteries for mess materials for whatever mm -hmm. The underlying technology is much broader than that and and that should be rewarded i think um we should be rewarding people who work on things that are universally applicable um more time would be amazing more time to do everything there's a sort of trend as you go more senior to do less teaching and to take on fewer students and to take on more admin roles but i like doing all of my job and i don't want to give up any of it mm -hmm. but the time is so so precious and it's so difficult um yeah, that's a real challenge. Um, and then the other one I would say is, and this is a little bit of a jokey one, but it's, I really wish people would stop telling me interesting things because every time someone tells me something interesting, I want to do a new project on it. <laughs> I am that little, I am that little magpie who's going after the shiny, shiny new thing. And it would be really nice if people could just give up asking me to do new stuff. But I'm absolutely joking about that because I love new things. Mm -hmm. And really the challenge is just finding the time to, to close off the old stuff. The pandemic's been so hard. It's been really tough for my students. It's been really tough for, for me as well. Um, there is a huge amount of stuff that we need to publish and we need to get out there. But finding the time when there's so many other things coming up, it's really, really hard. So, yeah, it's sort of that combination of things is what mm -hmm. I really need. Mm -hmm. So more money, more time. And I think the second and the third, or rather all three wishes of yours are kind of connected. And Yeah, I think that's probably right. Just just more more time and more bandwidth to do things um that are really interesting and, yeah. yeah definitely bursting with ideas you are <laughs> uh. <laughs> maybe it's just the nature of this opportunity though like i think i said to you mid-career is a really great place to be i'm mid-career right now and it's you're not senior enough to get asked to do the really like scary important admin business stuff of the university but you've got past that like how do I get my first grant how do I get my first student thing so yeah. you're you're in this really happy place where you can do anything but you can't do everything <laughs> <laughs> and I want to do everything <laughs> you can do anything but you can't do everything that should so, be a t-shirt I feel <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well that's the second yeah. business idea we've had <laughs> exactly well speaking like uh, speak of uh, bursting with creative ideas um, <laughs> that's awesome this is that's really cool I really hope all three wishes of yours uh, do materialize in one way or the other material science materialize ha, ha, ha. Um, <laughs> not making puns on this very very um, serious science podcast at all never happens um, <laughs> Right, this has been wonderful getting to know you so and i can't wait for our followers to know more about your research more about you more about warwick more about the connection between warwick and tata and everything everything so what can the followers expect in the week that you are taking over the real scientist nano twitter account uh, it's, it's going to be a very exciting week i actually specifically asked for this week because <laughs> that i've ended up with um because it happens to be a week where I think I'm doing every part of my job. And that's not normal for like a given week. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a particularly intense week. But I will be talking about background and where I sort of came from, mm -hmm. um, talking about our research, especially uh, going through sort of how you conventionally process a ceramic and how we do it with these new technologies mm -hmm. and talking about some of the applications. So, so batteries and metamaterials. But alongside that, you're all going to come along for a ride with me as I do teaching. Um, I have a ceramics lecture to teach um, oh. on the first day. I It's the last week of term. So I'm seeing all my tutees. Um, they all come along and, and have a chat to me about how the term's gone. And we uh, exchange Christmas wishes, of course, because it's the last week of term. Uh, project students who are who are 
will be then halfway through their project. So hopefully we might even have some results to, to have a quick uh, sneak preview of. Um, and then towards the end of the week, I, um, I'm involved in a UK initiative called the UK Metamaterials Network. And mm -hmm. the co-investigators, like the deputy person. Um, and on the Friday, we are running an outreach showcase. So I will take everyone around the exhibits and we will have a look at some real life metamaterials. I know people had a preview of that with the, the, last, uh, the last person, but um, we'll have some more. And uh, and you'll get to visit the advisory board meeting. That might be a little bit confidential, but um, we will go along to the advisory board meeting together where our advisory board, who are amazing and give us some great advice, will be helping us with what do we do with our network. We've got a community of over 600 people in the UK, which we've built up in the last 18 months and mm -hmm. a lot of really dedicated people who really believe in metamaterials and what we can do with them. So uh, we've got to capitalise on that and, and build something for the future. So, yeah, you're going to come on a ride with me um, around and all those bits of my job and hopefully it won't be too hectic oh, <laughs> then not? I'm having the weekend off I will be uh, posting pictures from the park <laughs> <laughs> that sounds amazing oh my god definitely action-packed week and wow that's a very 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 um full week and kind of yeah it is not always like this and it, i will emphasize it's normally a little bit less uh less tactic <laughs> mm -hmm. okay okay well we can't wait to uh join you for your week uh of lots of things that you're doing thank you very much claire for speaking with me this has been wonderful and can't wait to have you on real scientist nano account thank you so much Thank you for listening. To know more about us, do visit our website, thescienstalk.com. And do consider giving us a review or a rating or follow, depending on wherever you're consuming this content. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>